You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Whose death? Remember last week we read about Stephen, one of the first deacons in the early church. And now Stephen was a bold witness for Jesus. And he angered the Jews as he preached this incredible message of Jesus to the Jews. And so they stoned Stephen. They threw him out of the city. They rushed at him and they screamed at him and they threw him out of the city and they beat him and stoned him and killed him. And just at the end of chapter seven, it says that uh, those that were doing the stoning laid their garments down at the, the feet of a young man named Saul. And that's when we're introduced to Saul. He, he's known in a few chapters to us as Paul the Apostle. And I uh, love Paul the Apostle, but this is Paul in his B.C. days. He's known as Saul. And uh, he consented to Stephen's death, or he gave the green light, or he was made happy by Stephen's death. He was glad that Stephen was being stoned uh, there. And, and so, uh, you know, hard to see Saul in his before Christ days, you know, uh, murdering Stephen And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so as we've been working through the book of Acts, we've been noticing that there was great power upon the early church. Constantly reading that phrase, great power and great grace upon the early church. And now we read about great persecution being brought against the early church. And Jesus says, you know, don't be surprised when you're persecuted. Paul tells Timothy, you know, those that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And this great persecution, you know, we're not talking anything little. We're talking men and women being drugged from their homes and thrown into prison and being martyred for the name of Christ. We don't know what that's like here in America. I'm going to be honest with you. My biggest persecution has happened within the last month at our prayer meeting. Yeah, at the prayer meeting out at the park. One week, a lady in a silver Audi goes driving down that long block by Stryker Park and just honks her horn the whole time she drives by our prayer meeting all the way down the block. And I don't know what that was all about. Perhaps that wasn't directed at us, but there was nothing else going on. And, uh, and then this Thursday, some, some young guys in a car pull out of 7-Eleven and whip around the street and shout out to our prayer meeting, Satan, you know. And uh, that's about the extent of the persecution I've gone through. Not very bad at all. But, you know, as you're there praying, you're like, oh, gosh, are they going to kill us? You know, and, uh, Lord, help me. You know, I'm, I'm looking to Stephen. I can totally sympathize with Stephen. No, I can't at all. That's really sad. But, you know, America doesn't really know persecution like other countries do, like the early church does. And we might someday... We very well might, but, but it was just a, a mark of the church. It's a mark of the church today that great persecution would happen. And so uh, the church is scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. And you see that word scattered there in verse 2, but also in verse 4. And it's a, it's a word that speaks of sowing seed, the farmer sowing seed. Here we see the seed of the early church being spread throughout that region over there. You know, it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, that martyrs and persecution cause people to spread throughout the world. And, and you know, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 
gives us an outline of the book of Acts when Jesus says that you're going to be witnesses of me in Judea. That's the area around Jerusalem. Samaria, just north of Jerusalem, uh, northern Israel. And then the uttermost parts of the world. That's the outline for the book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 7, you see the ministry and the gospel going to Judea. And then here in chapter 8, we see the gospel going to Samaria through chapter uh, 12. And then chapters 13 through 28, you see the gospel going forth to the uttermost parts of the world, up into Europe. And, uh, you know, it's just neat to see this outline playing forth as we work through the book of Acts. But we see that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem where the persecution was happening. At the time, this was where you know, the hub and the leadership was of the early church. And so they stayed there, even though it meant severe persecution upon them. You know, that's such a beautiful thing when you look at the apostles, that they were willing to hazard their lives. You know, we're going to read in a couple of chapters about Paul and Barnabas hazarding their lives for the gospel. That's a mark of a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit is that they're willing to suffer for Jesus. You know, you read about Nate Saint who had a call from the Lord to go down to the headhunters, the Alka Indians down in uh, Ecuador. And he was told, you know, don't go, don't go. And he said, you know what? When I look at what Christ accomplished for me on the cross, I can only, you know, I can only give my life over to him with reckless abandon. And we know the outcome of that was when Nate Saint went down there, he was uh, thrust through with the the spear of of an Alka Indian. You know, a beautiful thing to see these men just with with reckless abandon, hazarding their life for the gospel as they stayed there in Jerusalem and, and as the scattering went out. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, verse two, and they made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. You know, Saul has had this hatred for Christians. You know, he he would uh, wreak havoc upon the church, or perhaps your version says that he would ravage the church or destroy the church or devastate the church. You know, we just don't know that in America, what devastation is within our church what that feels like. But the early church did. You know, Saul, he thought that he was doing God a favor. In Philippians chapter three, he says, I was very zealous for God, dragging off Christians. I thought that I was doing God a favor. And in John chapter two, Jesus says, you know what? You're, you're gonna be kicked out of synagogues and drug out of synagogues and people are gonna persecute you thinking they're doing God a favor. It's exactly what Saul was doing. And you know, he was wrong. He was wrong on what God's heart was, uh, what God's plan was. And so imagine being at your 242 group or praying with your family in your living room and the door is kicked open and there's Saul standing there with all of his religious cronies ready to drag your wife out by her hair and drag you out and kill your wife or kill your kids or, you know, or, or put you in prison. You know, it was a time of, of, uh, persecution against the early church. And it says that those who were scattered in verse four went everywhere preaching the word. You know, they were preachers. They didn't just go in the midst of their persecution and hide underneath their house or hide in their attic or make a secret wall in their house. But no, they were made even more bold to tell people about Jesus. You know, it's been said that, you know, you can't snuff out the flame of Christianity. But as people would try to 
kick out the fire of Christianity, the embers and the flames and the sparks would, would spread into the forest and that hit that dry kindling and it would make a great forest fire. It's exactly what persecution does as people see you suffering and being beaten and being martyred and, and, you know, going through hard times for the name of Jesus. They say, you know what? How is that person so full of joy in the midst of these trials? I don't know what they've got, but I want it. And then they find out you've got Jesus who gives you joy in spite of your circumstances, joy in the midst of persecution. And they opened up their mouths. They preached the word. You know, that's, that's a huge thing that Christians nowadays feel like they don't need to do is open up their mouths and preach. Leave that to the guy that gets paid the big bucks for it. You know, that's what Christians so often say. But you know what? That's not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is open mouth Christianity. It's not actions speak louder than words Christianity, but rather actions validate my words is Christianity. You know, Paul said, pray for me that I might open up my mouth. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, you know, how shall they be saved unless they hear? And how shall they hear unless someone speaks to them about Jesus? And God has placed each one of you in your circles, in your cultures, in your friendships, in your relationships for a reason, for such a time as this, that you might open up your mouth and make known to this dying lost world that they're going to hell, but that someone came and paid the price that they could be saved. Open up your mouths. The early church did, both men and women. Then verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So we're introduced to Philip here. We remember him from Acts chapter 6, that he's one of the original deacons. And man, isn't that a neat thing to see? Once again, him and Stephen both, deacons, servants, waiting on tables, you know, uh, cleaning toilets, scrubbing windows, sweeping up stuff, stacking chairs, moving tables, you know, servants that were faithful in the little things, God gave them great responsibility, signs and wonders, made them evangelists, and trusted them with great things and brought great glory to himself. And so I encourage you guys, don't despise the days of the little things. Don't despise the days holding a rag and a Windex bottle or a mop or a toilet plunger. Don't despise those. God will see that and he'll, you know, he'll see that you're happy and blessed to do those things and he'll entrust you with greater things. Just like he did with Stephen and now here he is with Philip as Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. Notice he preached Christ. You know, something about Philip is that whenever he would open up his mouth, he was talking about Jesus. You know, he's, told, he's called later on in the book of Acts, Philip the Evangelist. And next week, as we look at the later part of the chapter here in chapter eight, we see that he came to the Ethiopian eunuch and it's beginning in Isaiah chapter 53 and then moving throughout the rest of the scriptures, he preached Christ to the Ethiopian. He was all about Jesus. And man, that's what I, that's who I want to be all about. That's who your pastor should be all about. May the name of Jesus just continually drip off of my mouth because it's all about him. You know, in Colossians chapter one, verse 12, Paul says, you know what? I preach Jesus because there's power in that name. There's wisdom in that name. And so, you know, he, he preached Christ in Samaria and the multitudes with one accord 
heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So multitudes or a throng of people with one accord, with harmony, they all came together and got saved. They heeded and received and listened to the things that were spoken by Philip. They saw the miracles that he was doing, which validated his message. You know, it's a beautiful thing to see this whole city, this multitude of people, uh, you know, heeding the things that, that Philip spoke. And then it says, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Matt, I don't know when the last time it was that you encountered a demon possessed person or exercised that demon out of that person. But, you know, I've been around a demon possessed person and it's pretty scary. And if I were to tell you today that we're going to head on out to Mitchell, a big church outreach, but just be ready because there's about, you know, a thousand demon possessed people in the town of Mitchell that we're going to, you know, be praying for, you know, I bet there's a lot of people that, you know, I'm not going on that. I don't want to be scared. I don't want my life to be threatened. You know, God wouldn't want me to be scared. God wouldn't call me to be somewhere where my life is threatened. And you know what I would say to you? He would, he would call you there. You know, those people that are in those danger zones need Jesus just as much as those in the safety zone. You know, just recently, I have a dear friend who, who's a pastor up in Montana who's received death threats. And I went to a pastor's conference with him, and he's been considering moving home. And he says, Man, my, my family's in danger. I'm in danger. You know, people are telling me they're going to kill me. And, and I just don't think that, that I can do it. And, and we were very sympathetic. And, and me and Pastor Rob just said, you know, that's actually normal Christianity in the world. That's normal. This isn't normal, Prineville Christianity. It's normal in these other cultures to be getting these death threats. And man, we're praying for wisdom for him, that he would just be led by the Lord. But it's a normal thing to be in the danger zone. I don't know if you've heard about Jim Elliott, but Jim Elliott was a wrestler in high school from Portland, Oregon, that felt the call to go with Nate Saint down to the Alca Indians down in Ecuador. And he was told by all of his wise counselors, don't go to Ecuador, man, you're a gifted Bible teacher, go to seminary and America needs more Bible teachers, be a pastor of a church and, you know, just have a big family and just grow old here. And Jim Elliott responded so wisely. I have a t-shirt that I printed this on the back of. And it, he said this, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And he ended up going on that trip and he ended up being thrust through with spears by these Indians. But his wife, along with his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, along with the other martyred, martyrs' wives, ended up going down after their husbands were killed and the Lord used them to lead this whole tribe to Jesus. You can watch the end of the spear documentary and movie. And it's just so incredible that these men weren't afraid to hazard their lives for Jesus. There's a man in the 1800s named John Stott and he was from Scotland and he had a burning passion in his heart to take Jesus to the islands of New Hebrides, which are just east of Australia, northeast of Australia. The problem was that the, uh, the people, the natives in New Hebrides were known to be cannibals. In fact, just before John Stott left Scotland, uh, a, a giant, uh, you know, a big ship, passenger ship, 
took this, took a few missionaries down to New Hebrides. Then they got in their little, you know, rowboat and they rowed some missionaries into shore. The missionaries got off the rowboat. Then as the rowboat was coming back to the main ship, they looked back and the cannibals came out, killed all the missionaries and began to eat them in front of the main passenger ship. The passenger ship then took that word back to Scotland and all of the elders and wise counselors in John Stott's life said, don't go to New Hebrides, John. The cannibals will eat you. And John Stott said this, either the cannibals are going to eat me or the worms are going to eat me. Either way, I'm going to be eaten, but I'm going to go out for Jesus And then he went down, man, you can listen to his biography on desiringgod.org. Beautiful story, incredible story about his mission down there to to the natives of New Hebrides. Incredible stuff. But at the end of his life in his journal, one of his final writings was this. New Hebrides won for Christ. This whole island that were once headhunter cannibals are now, it's, a, it's known to be a Christian island because of this work. John Stott wasn't afraid to hazard his life for Jesus. May we be bold to hazard our lives for our God who gave so much for us. Even if that means going to where there's a whole bunch of demons or a very dark land. Now, it's very significant that revival is happening in Samaria. When do we, when do we know about, what do we know about Samaria? We remember Jesus in John chapter four, talking to the Samaritan woman. But even before that, if you go back to second Kings chapter 17, you read about the Northern 10 tribes of Israel, not repenting of their sexual immorality, of their idolatry, of their child sacrifices, and so much more persecuting the prophets that God sent to speak to them so that northern 10 tribes of Israel was vomited out of the land because of their idolatry and pagan practices that they had adopted. God kicked them out of the land and delivered them over to Assyria to be disciplined for for a good number of years. Now, the way the Assyrians would deal with their prisoners is this. They would spread their prisoners all throughout the land. And Assyria was huge at this time. Even Babylon was part of Assyria at this time. They would spread Israel all across the land and intermix them with all of their other prisoners and nations that they had taken captive. So that there was a mixture of beliefs and customs and strategies and tactics. And there was not like-mindedness. No one was able to say, remember the days of Moses, let's charge back and fight back against the Assyrians. But rather, there was this mixture that began to happen. And there was a group of Jews that were left in that northern area of Israel called Samaria. But they were also intermixed with a whole bunch of other pagan cultures and practices. In fact, you can read about it in 2 Kings that uh, because there was such paganism going on, that the land began to attack the people that lived there. People were dying, the animals and the beasts and all this crazy stuff was happening. And so the king of Assyria said, hey, let's send back one of their priests who used to minister in their temple and let's have him go back and kind of get those customs going again so that the land will quit attacking us. So they sent back a priest. But the problem was the priest himself was involved in paganism. And so the uh, Samaritan people up in that northern area of Israel, uh, they were known to be this, and the Jews hated them for this. They were known to be half-breeds culturally, and they were known to be pagans religiously. 
They were known to be those types of people that are only on your side when things are going well for you. But as soon as things start going bad, they turn their back on you. And so from the days of, of, uh, Israel coming out of Assyrian captivity, clear up through the days of Jesus and the apostles, the Jews hated the Samaritans. But there was one man who didn't hate the Samaritans, Jesus. And in John chapter four, him and his disciples are traveling through the region. And it says that Jesus had to stop in Samaria. He was tired and he was thirsty, but that's not why he had to stop. He had an encounter with a woman at a well. Do you remember the story? When the woman is there at the well and Jesus says to her, if you drink of that water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of me, you will never thirst again. And the conversation goes on, but she ends up saying, I want the water that you're talking about, Jesus, and I'm going to go get my husband. And he said to her, you don't have a husband. You have five husbands and the one that you're with now isn't your husband. And so she went out throughout the rest of the town and said, come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And so the whole city came back and they received Jesus. You know, I don't know if that means that a total revival happened because apparently the total revival is happening here in Acts chapter eight. But the thing is, Jesus plowed the way of accepting and loving on these half breed pagans because he knew he had a heart for them and they needed salvation. And Philip goes and continues this work of love towards these people. So it's very significant uh, that, this, that this group of people, the multitudes, the city is being saved. And uh, we just see the fruit of that, you know, and th- this dark culture, this, this demon possessed people are, you know, are being freed and with loud voices, these demons would come out, but also the paralyzed and the lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Can God save a city? Absolutely. He can save a city. Our own culture has seen revivals like this. Our own nation has seen revivals like this back in the 1800s, the Fulton street revival in New York, you know, uh, Uh, unemployment was huge. There were drunkards all throughout the street and uh, the prisons were full. And one man, uh, Jeremiah Lathrop, I believe his name was Lathrop. uh, He worked in the financial district by Wall Street on Fulton Street. And he felt the Lord call him to send out invitations to all of the business owners that they would close their, close their stores from noon to one during the day. And they would come and pray for their city. And so he sent out the invitations and, and on the first day, uh, six people showed up, but they showed up a half an hour late. So I'm sure he was really discouraged. No one's going to come and have people half hour. Six people come the next day, 10 people come the next day, 40 people come pretty soon. Thousands of businesses are shutting their doors and all the churches are opening their doors. The prisons uh, became empty because everyone was getting saved. Revival was happening. In fact, the police officers had nothing to do. So they started choirs and they began going and singing at these church prayer meetings during the day. And it was known to be 10,000 people a day saved in New York City uh, for a good portion of time. Uh, over a million people saved during the Fulton Street revival period. In fact, an interesting part as this revival spread down throughout the East Coast is that mining actually suffered during these days because the mules that they would use to mine only responded uh, to, the, to the cuss words that were used as directions for these mules to work. 
And so, you know, they had to retrain, take a season and retrain these mules because these men got saved and didn't want impure speech to come out of their mouths. Don't you love that about our history, our American history and our church history that revivals can happen? Whole nations can be saved. A whole town of 10,600 people can be saved and great joy can go throughout the city. Man, pray for that, will you? Will you pray for that with me? Man, Thursday and Thursdays, the Lord has impressed upon my heart to fast and pray all through Thursday, up throughout the prayer meeting, uh, that the Lord would do the book of Acts in Prineville and in our church. And so I, I join me, you know, and as long as we're in the book of Acts, the Lord just said, hey, uh, fast and pray. Cry out that as much as you're hungry for food, you're even more hungry that people in this town will come to know Jesus. Will you join me? Will you join me? Will you put it on your calendar? Will you put it in your alarm on your phone to remind you on Thursday morning? Hey, we're going to fast and pray today. And uh, I always just close my fast after the prayer meeting uh, on Thursday nights. But, you know, a, a city can be saved. And a city, even as economically troubled as ours right now, can have great joy in it. Verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria. You might underline this, claiming that he was someone great. So he was very prideful, uh, prideful in his sorcery, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he'd astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So here's this man, uh, Simon, Simon the sorcerer. And he's kind of an interesting cat that is a little difficult to figure out. You know, uh, he previously practiced sorcery, which in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read God's heart on sorcery. In fact, you can go ahead and flip there. As you're flipping to Deuteronomy chapter 18, you know, I was, uh, heard about a Newsweek article back in 97, that's 1997 for those of you that are young here today, <laughs> but back in 1997, that three out of four Christians visited a psychic hotline regularly. Isn't that incredible? Then today I was just, I just was looking to see, man, what, what's kind of a modern statistic? And I didn't have to go very far when, uh, I, I just typed in Christians and psychics and uh, came to christianpsychic.net. And it was there that I met this nice little girl named Grace. And she wrote this. Hello, my name is Grace. I am a Christian who just happens to be a psychic. I suppose that either makes me a psychic Christian or a Christian psychic. I'm never sure which. Some people are blessed with great physical talent, and if they use that wonderful gift to become a great athlete, it's a wonderful thing. I was blessed with unique psychic abilities. My Christian faith has inspired me to be the best that I can be in all aspects of life, and my gift allows me to help others. I feel guided by God, and I deeply believe that if you give, you shall receive. If you're looking for a Christian psychic who has deep Christian roots to assist you in matters of love, relationship, life questions, or help with spiritual guidance, I'm here for you. Let's just see how deep her Christian roots go. Huh? Let's just go to the basics of the basics, and let's read Deuteronomy chapter nine, or 18, verse 9. When you come into the land of the Lord your God is giving you, 
You shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes a son or daughter pass through the fire, and that was child sacrifice worship of the day, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So what do our deep Christian roots tell us God's heart is towards the psychic hotline, towards tarot card reading, towards horoscope, towards palm reading, towards any of that stuff? That it is an abomination. It opens up a door for darkness into your life and God hates it. And if you practice it, you'll be vomited out of the land just like the Canaanites and the pagans before Israel. That is God's heart towards that. Run from it, flee from it. It is darkness and it's an abomination before the Lord. And you know, I've just heard so many Christians say, yeah, I read my horoscope and here's what it said today. And man, danger zone, run away from that. You know, I remember one kid in my youth group when I was growing up saying that, uh, you know, his dad would use a Ouija board whenever they needed to make big decisions as the family. Man, but what was Moses's charge to the Israelites? The Lord will raise up a prophet from among you him you shall hear. And two times in Acts, last week we looked at it, we're told that prophet coming out of the Jewish people is Jesus. And we're to hear Jesus. And he's revealed himself to us in his word. So repent of that paganism and come spend time in his word towards us. You, you want to know the will of God? Spend time with God. He's made that time available for you. And so all of these people were so impressed with Simon's sorceries. And, you know, there's such a word for us not to just believe a movement or believe a man or a doctrine because there's great signs and wonders. Yes, it's true that great signs and wonders come with those that are uh, followers of God. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that can't be your only source of, you know, proof. You got to look at the word. You got to test these things. And we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, that the coming of the Antichrist is according to great power and signs and wonders, that even the elect are going to be deceived because of these signs and wonders, that, that the people will believe a lie. They'll have strong delusion placed over them. And Jesus says, you know, uh, that, that even the elect will be deceived. And then he even goes so far to say, that a wicked and perverse generation is always looking for that sign. And he says, you want a sign? I'll show you a sign. I'll rise from the dead. And you know what? He did rise from the dead. It's one of the greatest proved facts in history that he's not decayed over in Israel, but that he's alive and ascended and is at the right hand of the father today. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. And he didn't leave us as orphans here, but he sent us his Holy Spirit that wherever we are, God will be working through us in power. He's with us. He's alive. And that is the sign. You know, even in Exodus, 
You see that the, uh, the soothsayers or the magicians of Pharaoh could work signs and wonders. And, you know, Moses was told that when you come before Pharaoh, have Aaron throw his rod down before the council and that rod will turn into a serpent. And so Aaron threw his rod down in the midst of, of Pharaoh and it turned into a serpent. But then many magicians threw their rods down and theirs turned into serpents as well. The awesome thing is, and you got to love it, then Aaron's snake went around and ate all of the other snakes and then turned back into a rod. So here's the difference. God's signs and wonders make the little signs and wonders puny and worthless. In fact, we even read that as the plagues of Egypt persisted, you know, the first one being the, the bloody Nile, that those magicians were able to right away turn water into blood. The problem was they weren't able to turn it back into water again. That was the useful trick that they should have used, but they didn't use it. And then later on, you know, that lice was a plague and, and, the, and the physicians, the magicians were not able to make the lice or, or they weren't able to make the boils. Their signs and wonders were very limited compared to our gods. And so, man, we got to use discernment. Don't just follow someone or something because of the signs and wonders. They should never replace the word of God or the gospel. They're there to validate the word of God and the gospel. And so, you know, Simon just has this history of being a, a, a sorcerer and everyone, all of his followers quit following him and started believing the, the gospel that Philip preached, the message about Jesus and the kingdom. And, and in verse uh, uh, 13 or verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So Saul is out in Judea dragging men and women off to prison. But in Samaria, both men and women, they don't care about the persecution they're coming to Jesus. They're getting saved and, uh, and they're being baptized as well. And Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they'd come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. And so there's two different uh, kind of confusing things about this section that we just read. Number one, uh, Simon, he's kind of, you know, he, he's an interesting cat. Like I said, uh, we're going to see there's some things that make you wonder uh, did he really believe, you know, was he saved at that moment or was he a counterfeit Christian? And we'll look at that in just a second. Why, why would I even say, was he a counterfeit Christian? It seems like it was all pretty legit. Well, we'll wait until we get just a little farther in the text. The other thing that's a little bit confusing right now is what's going on with the Holy Spirit not being given to the people when they believed or when they were baptized, but the Holy Spirit wasn't given until the apostles came. Peter and John came up from Jerusalem. And as we read verse 16 again, as yet he, the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And 
Howard Marshall from Aberdeen University, a professor of theology, said that this is the most extraordinary verse in the book of Acts. Uh, it can cause a lot of confusion, and I'm not going to be to say that I've got it all figured, figured out. I have my thoughts, and there's other neat men of God that have their thoughts as well. Here's one approach to what's happening here, verses 14 through 18. One approach is that, you know, the Samaritans were a, you know, a, a, a group of people that were not accepted by the Jerusalem church. And so here revival is happening. People are believing and being baptized. And, uh, and you know, some feel that there needed to be an apostle present before the Holy Spirit fell upon them uh, so that there was a witness that they were having the same work of God happening. And it wasn't separate clans or separate groups. We have our way of doing things. You have your way. That's the way it had always been done between Samaria and Jerusalem. They were always, you know, warring rival cities. And so some people think that's what's happened. That's why the Holy Spirit was delayed in being given because an apostle needed to be there to, uh, to say, okay, it all happened just like it happened in Jerusalem. Awesome, awesome men of God view it that way. John MacArthur, even one of my favorites, uh, Alistair Begg, he, he thinks that's basically what's being uh, spoken there. I personally have a different take on this section and, um, you know, it's just, just how I view it, but I'm definitely not dogmatic on it and I still believe we can have fellowship together. And, uh, but my take on this section is two different things. Number one, God is not in a box as to when he can come upon or will come upon a believer's life. Now, I believe there's three different works of the Holy Spirit we see in the Greek. There's the para of the Holy Spirit. Para means the Holy Spirit is alongside of you before you're a Christian, and he convicts you of sin and righteousness and judgment, and he leads you to salvation. Then when you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside you, and it's the Greek word en, and you are sealed, Ephesians chapter 1, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and he is a guarantee of your salvation. Then I personally believe there's a third work of the Holy Spirit, the epi of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is just one place that you read about the epi where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you or epi. He'll come upon you uh, or he'll overflow over you. He'll, uh, you know, give you power and, and courage and strength. And I, I believe that's a third work of the Holy Spirit. And personally, I believe that it's subsequent to salvation. It's a separate work than salvation. And I think Acts chapter 8 shows us that God's not in a box as to when he comes upon the epi a believer, when torrents of living water will come out of a Christian's life. It could be at the moment of salvation. You read about that in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius's family. It could be... Uh, you know, after salvation and after baptism, like we see here in Acts chapter 8, he's not in a box. Okay, I also believe that God's not in a box as to how he comes upon a believer, whether it's the laying on of hands, special prayer being said, or if it's just during the listening of the word of God, that God can pour out his spirit upon a Christian as well. Let's look at the Samaritans here. They were a common people who had believed... So they believed the words of Philip and they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You might note the word they had only 
been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And in verse 36 and 38 through 38, in the same chapter, Philip shows us that the prerequisite for baptism is believing in Jesus with all your heart. And if you believe in the message of Jesus with all your heart, you may be baptized. So what's the prerequisite for baptism? Belief. I personally believe that when a person believes, they're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When Jesus, after he was resurrected from the dead, he said to the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit. And did they not receive the Holy Spirit? I think he tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's my view is that they received the Holy Spirit. He came in them. But then he said, go a separate event, go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon you and you'll receive power to be witnesses. Now, the only reason that I'm even talking about it is it's two different views that two different groups, groups of godly men that love Jesus believe. And, uh, you know, I love that Alistair Begg, who, who's so good about not getting dogmatic about a non-essential issue, but he said this concerning the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit or the epi of the Holy Spirit or the overflowing of the Holy Spirit. He said this in his Scottish accent that you love so much. He said, whatever it is, I want it. And whatever it is, I need it. And as you look at the scripture, there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. John truly baptized with the element of water, but one will come after me whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to unstrap. And he will baptize, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you will have boldness to be a witness for Jesus. Do you feel powerless Today, do you feel like I never have the strength to open my mouth about Jesus? Wait on the Lord. Cry out for a a fresh filling. Maybe the first filling. Maybe a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. In the book of Acts, it says they were continually filled, overflowing with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, Jesus talks about when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive torrents of living water. Be honest with yourself. Do you have the torrents of living water today? Do you have boldness on a biblical level like the book of Acts shows us? And if not, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit by faith today. Jesus wants you to be filled and continually filled more than you even want to. But whatever it is, I want it. And whatever it is, I need it. Whether you call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit or the overflowing of the Holy Spirit, the continual fill, we need his power because we don't have the strength to be martyrs in and of ourselves, Lord, even today as I'm teaching, just pour yourself out on us. And so, you know, we just see that at this point, verse 6, he had fallen upon, and I love that, fallen upon none of these Christians yet. I, personally, I believe he was in them, but hadn't yet fallen upon them. And I love the Greek word, fallen upon is epipito epi. It's epi, it's upon, it's upon upon, epipito epi. The Holy Spirit had yet fallen upon these believers for power. And uh, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So when they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Again, you know, I I don't think every time you have to have someone lay hands on you to receive the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, different accounts throughout scripture show, man, it could be right now while I'm teaching that the Lord would baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It could be, you know, while you're at your home and you're praying by your bed or you're worshiping at your piano at home, whatever. God's not in a box. In this case, 
the disciples had come and they laid hands upon them and they prayed for them uh, that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And they received the Holy Spirit, verse 17. And when Simon saw that through the laying of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. And let's just observe something right now. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was something that could be observed. Simon was able to see that there was something radical going on as these people were baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, they were bold proclaimers of Jesus. They were using these gifts that uh, the Holy Spirit was pouring out as the Holy Spirit willed. And uh, they were, but ultimately, man, they were being bold for Jesus. And he thought, man, I kind of all of a sudden been feeling called to the signs and wonders ministry. You know, no doubt he was missing the old glory days of Simon the sorcerer, bam, appearing on a stage in a cloud of smoke. You know, he's like, oh man, hey, if there's some way to have that happen within the church, <laughs> I'm your guy. And so he offers money uh, for this for this uh, talent or this trick. And he said, give me the power also that anyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. You know, this is a practice that's still done today by magicians. You know, they've got their little magicians guilds and secrets of the tricks. And they spend thousands of dollars to learn each other's uh, special tricks and practices. And, uh, and so he was thinking, hey, this is some kind of trick here. Maybe I can buy it. Maybe I can learn the secret to what's happening here. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this, your wickedness and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So a major rebuke to Simon the sorcerer. Now, was Simon a genuine Christian that just was struggling with the past and the Lord was doing a sanctifying work in him? Or was he just, you know, all of his crowds and followers were following the apostles now. And if you can't beat them, then join them and then finds the way, you know, it says that he followed Philip and looked at all these signs and wonders and was astonished at him. And maybe he thought, maybe I can become great uh, in this new little movement or whatever. We don't know. Only the Lord knows that. Either way, God had to do a work in Simon's life. And because Peter loved Simon the sorcerer, Peter rebuked Simon the, Simon the sorcerer. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 says, don't you know, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chase them. That's a word spoken from a father to a son. Which of us had a dad that didn't love us, but he corrected us. He loves us. He corrects us. And, and fruits of righteousness come from that. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And there's a lot of times when maybe I'm going to need to correct you. People are going to need to correct me. But uh, man, we need to be admonished. We need to be corrected so that we'll have purity in our lives, so we'll have truth in our lives, and that we can get out of this funk or this sin that we're in. But Simon offered money, and you know, it became a practice in, in even the church thousands of years ago called simony. It was a practice that was frowned upon to buy positions within the church uh, with your money or your treasures. Uh, that's where the name came from. You know, so can I buy this? But Peter, with a word of knowledge, just rebukes this man. Your money perish with you. You think the gift of God can be bought? You know, Hebrew, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that God gives these gifts and distributes them as he wills. Then they're gifts. They're gifts. You can't 
by them. And then he says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. Your heart is not right. It was an issue of the heart for Simon. He was missing the accolades and the following. And it goes on to say that he is you know, poisoned by bitterness and by iniquity. There was sin in his life that needed to be repented of. He needed to turn away from this sin of jealousy and wanting to be famous. And you know what? I believe there's such a word for us today. And listen up. I, I know sometimes it's hard to listen forever, but listen up, okay? Because I had to listen. Last night, I couldn't go to sleep till about 2, 2.30. All I could think about was this portion about Simon having sin and iniquity and bitterness in his life. And because of that, he had no part or portion of the Holy Spirit. He had no part in the saving work of the Holy Spirit. He had no part in the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And if you are walking in sin, if you are walking in bitterness, if you are walking in, uh, in sexual immorality, if you are walking in malice and having a desire to see other people suffer, if you are sleeping with your girlfriend, let me tell you this, you are in danger of judgment because the marriage bed is undefiled among all. But if you are a fornicator, an adulterer, God will judge you. First Thessalonians chapter four says that the will of God is that you are pure sexually. And if you disobey that, you're defrauding your brother or your sister and you're not disobeying man, you're disobeying God who gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to you. But if you're walking in sexual immorality, you're quenching that work in your life. If you're walking in hatred, then Jesus says you're murdering your brother in your heart. If you're walking in lust, Jesus says you've committed adultery in your heart. If you're walking in witchcraft or fornication or pharmakia or sorceries like we've been studying, you need to repent of it. If you've got an idea in your head like Simon had, uh, this messed up view on the Holy Spirit, that the third person of the Trinity is not God, but that he's some kind of force like gravity or electricity, you need to repent because the Holy Spirit is God and he is worthy to be worshiped as God. If you're quenching the Holy Spirit because of your sin, repent. If you're an arguer, Romans chapter one says, repent. If you're disobedient to your parents, repent. And man, yesterday I just went through Romans chapter one and I looked at every one of the list sins of depravity and I looked deep into what it meant in the Greek. And man, there is so much of it going on in our church. And I'll tell you, I've been spending time down at the Oasis and I just see it. People that come to our church and they're just bitter and angry or I come here and there's murmuring or gossiping, you know, or there's materialism and there's people that have other gods of hobbies and idols and things and people. And I'd rather sleep with my girlfriend and not be at church than be in fellowship with Jesus who died for me and gave himself for me. Repent, get rid of it, turn around. If you're looking at pornography on the internet, you're quenching the Holy Spirit in your life and you have neither part or portion with the Holy Spirit. You're quenching the work that God is doing in this church and you're quenching the work that God is doing in you. If you're deceitful and you're putting decoys out there, you're in sin. If you're deleting the history on your computer because you're looking at pornography and no one's gonna find it, you're in sin, repent of it. You have no part or portion. Now we all stumble and we all fall and we all, man, we're, we're humans. Yes, that's true. But a Christian a person that has part or portion with the Holy Spirit will hate sin and will get rid of that in their life. Sorry, I got off there. But man, when you stay up for two hours in the middle of the night and can't sleep because it's a word for your church, repent, repent. 
for your own good, for the glory of God, repent. Repent. There's so much. And you know, the Holy Spirit's telling you, man, he didn't mention my sin, so I'm good to go. Repent of it. Read Romans chapter 1, and I guarantee in some way or another in your heart, you're breaking something. You're, you're, you know, you're spitting in Jesus' face. But man, if you love Jesus, you'll keep his commandments. You'll keep his commandments. And Simon, perhaps a counterfeit Christian, perhaps a Christian that's just struggling. Regardless of it, his heart was wrong before the Lord, then he needed to get right. And maybe today, man, you men, you need to get together with a brother and you need to confess your sin. You women, you need to get together with a sister and you need to confess your sin. You need to be cleansed of it. Don't quench the Holy Spirit, we're told. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Repent of this, your wickedness, and pray if God perhaps the thought of your heart could be forgiven you. You know, sometimes the Lord has been telling us repent for so long and we get stiff necked towards him that there comes a day when the Lord will relent. There comes a day when the Lord will give you over to your sin and forgiveness won't be granted. Man, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Repent of your sin. Come to Jesus If you have bitterness in your heart towards another brother, you go talk to that brother. If you're bound in sin, man, Jesus came to set the sinner free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Verse 24, Then Simon answered and said, Pray the Lord for me, pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you've spoken may come upon me. You know, I know a lot of guys, and I don't know where I'm at on this, but they read Stephen's response and they see a lack of repentance. They see a guy that's been confronted with his sin and he's told that he's going to be judged. He's not going to have part of the Holy Spirit or of the kingdom. And he says, hey, you pray for me that none of these bad things will happen to me. You know, who knows? That's, that's kind of how I see it. I don't know. But man, I hope he repented. Tradition says that Stephen went on to... Um, become a Gnostic heretic in the tradition of the Jehovah's Witness modern day, that he was the one that founded that uh, blasphemous movement. And tradition also says that Stephen was the guy that, um, or Simon was the guy that uh, was um, Peter's arch enemy through Peter's ministry. And anywhere that Peter would go or do, there would Simon be speaking against him. We all need our arch enemies in life, am I right? But uh, who, who knows? Man, I hope that wasn't that Simon. I hope that this Simon repented. And you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 tells us that godly sorrow produces repentance. Man, that we would hate our sin because we love our Jesus. And we would weep when we understand that he shed his blood and his body was broken for us. And I don't want to continue on it because I love Jesus. And Paul says that, man, you will become so zealous for Jesus if you have godly sorrow. You will have such vehement desire for Jesus. And you will prove yourself to be totally clear in the matter of sin that you repented of. It'll be so obvious that you hate that sin so much you've turned from it. May godly sorrow produce repentance. And I'm not sure if that's what happened in Simon's life. Then he went on to say, so when they testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, practicing the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So the gospel went out throughout this land that was once pagan. People were being reconciled to God and set free 
from sin. May God do that in our midst today. Let's pray. Jacob, you can come on up and close us in a song. And just put your stuff aside. And let's pray right now that the Holy Spirit would grant repentance of our sin. Lord, would you just give us such a hatred for our sin, for things that were listed today and things that weren't listed, Lord. We know as you convict us of our sin. And just right now where you're at, maybe right now as we close in song, you just will get up and go share with a brother just your sin or grab a sister and just confess. Maybe even as we sing, man, you just want to come up and get right with Jesus and just bow before him somewhere on the ground. Maybe you want to grab communion again and just say, Lord, I took communion in an unworthy manner this morning. I'm in sin. I'm not right with you. And today, Lord, I come to the the cross where you poured out your blood and broke your body so that I could be forgiven and healed and set free from a wicked heart, a bitter heart. Man, just as we close in song, you can do those things. Maybe you just want to lift your hands up in repentance to the Lord. And let's do that first in this song. And then as we close as well, maybe you are here and you want the power of the Holy Spirit, the epi of the Holy Spirit, the fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the the torrents of living water coming from your life. Just be honest. If, If it's not happening, just say to the Lord, Lord, I don't know if it's when, when you want to give it to the, the spirit to me, but Lord, I know I need power. Whether you want to call it the outpouring or the baptism or the fresh filling or the continual filling, I need it and I want it, Lord. And if that's your heart, you just know you want more. Maybe just stand during this last song and just receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in faith. I think the reason I even got into that is, man, I'm a man who just, as a pastor, I'm just continually praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Man, maybe today, you too, you just cry out for more, more power, torrents of living water, and receive by faith the outflowing, the outpouring Let's worship him. Let's get right with him. Let's have part and portion in the work of the Holy Spirit today. Don't leave this place just unrepentant of your sin, but repent today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.